0: I'm Judy Adams. I'm president of the local branch of the American Association of University Women, and it just so happens that Ms. Rondolin and Loma and Lisa and I are all members of AAUW that it didn't start out that way, but here we are. (laughs) This is the fifth in our series of a conversation about race here in Owensboro. It started... Because we felt with some of the, the things that were going on, the violence in, in cities, uh, shootings of unarmed people, what have you, that the elephant in the room was race. Um, and we felt like we needed to have a forum where we could all speak openly and learn about one another and kind of learn about how, this, how did we get here, you know, how did this happen? So, uh, Lisa has offered the library and we have been here every time. Uh, we have one more book that we have chosen after tonight. That doesn't mean it's the end, it just means that we've only chosen one more. We're only one month ahead of ourselves. And that is, you can't... Don't touch
1: don't,
0: don't my hair. Don't touch my hair. And it's it's, a, it's written by a comedian and uh, treats treats the subject lightly let's put it that way truthfully but lightly so thank you Lisa Uh, this is going to be recorded correct so if you want if if you want to speak please raise your hand and we'll get the mic to you so that it can be included in the in the podcast okay and Ms (laughs) yes Evelyn (laughs) she raised her hand (laughs) um Aloma Du is, of course, familiar to many of you. She's a local historian and has been involved with the Human Relations Commission and lots of other activities here in town. And she's going to give us a little background about the history uh, uh, covered in this book, and then we'll go on and have questions and discussion. We're hoping that this particular forum will give us more time to interact with each other. Sometimes we wind up listening a lot which isn't bad but you know part of this is to have conversation okay thank you
2: okay
1: happy first day of spring spring symbolizes the sign of new beginnings and renewed life and i hope that that is symptomatic of what's happening in owensboro Uh, a search for new beginnings and understanding and compassion and i guess i should add optimism uh, I hope all of you have been able to read the book, White Rage. Uh, we're going to discuss it tonight. I'm just going to give you a little bit of background uh, from the historian's point of view so that even though you've read it, you'll have an understanding of, of how we got to here. And uh, Rondolin has made up a whole list of wonderful questions, which hopefully we will. I'm working some of them in and some of them we'll talk about at the end, but we want your opinions and what this book meant to you so don't let me talk too much. Um, this book is called White Rage. Did, did anybody want to tell me what you thought that white rage means or what it meant to you when you read it? I mean it's a pretty strong statement. Okay, uh, she subtitles it the unspoken truth of our racial divide and one uh, person who reviewed the book, said that this is a must-read for anybody who's interested in making our nation more united and more perfect. I don't think those are the words that she used, but we cannot understand our problems if we don't understand how we got there. Very small book. Um, what, What the reviewer said was, anyone interested in understanding and perfecting our union needs to have read this book. What drove Carol Anderson to write it was Ferguson. And that was just kind of the, the little spark. And she started going back and thinking, what, where did we, how did we get here? What caused this? And everybody was talking after Ferguson about uh, black rage, burning buildings in black communities, and, and, and violence black upon black. And she got to thinking about it and decided that it wasn't black rage, It's white rage, the feeling, primarily fear, I think, that has been engendered in many white people uh, as black people get more power. So, what it's about is the step toward empowerment and the undoing of that empowerment. Yes? I just had one thing to add.
3: I don't know if uh, anyone is familiar with uh, Van Jones on CNN. Is that his name? Well, when he gave his comments after the results of the election, and he said it was a white lash, kind of what uh, he was describing in the results of this uh, past election were akin to uh, the white rage that is described in this book.
1: Okay, I'll have to look him up. Uh, she, she documents that this, this problem has been going on for centuries, that there has been a long effort to derail black progress. And I think those African-Americans in the room may be able to discuss that a little bit better in a little bit. Um, the election of the first black president, which many of us thought was, you know, this, this was it, this was wonderful, everything's going to change. Actually, it was just the opposite. It was the spark or the flame that set in motion what we are seeing today and very likely, very probably, uh, the election of Donald Trump. And one of the questions that Rondolin asked was, has white rage been expressed to oppress other minority groups throughout history? You think of other, I thought it was a very good question, the Japanese. Definitely. You know, a lot of us didn't even know about those internment camps until we were practically adults. It was not in our high school history books. Nobody ever told us about it. There were also Italian internment camps and almost nobody knows that. Yes, yes, there were, because they were also on the other side. Um, how did you feel, rondolin You can tell us. When Ben Carson referred to slaves as immigrants,
3: I felt it was an insult that he would refer to slaves as immigrants or a different kind of immigrant at the bottom of the boat. Um, An immigrant is a person that would uh, move or transfer or go to another country voluntarily. I mean, it may be hard, but they would go voluntarily. Uh, The African-American experience, the majority of us, we came as a result of slavery, were descendants of slaves. And being enslaved is totally different than being an immigrant. So I couldn't understand what he, why he would even associate the two.
1: And I think that words are very important. You know, we used to, when we were kids, it was uh, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words won't hurt you. I don't think that's really true. And I think the use of words in ways like this, and I think this is one of the things that she talks about, um, The background for this topic, you have to go back to the Civil War. Uh, Most of you have some passing knowledge of the Civil War, but this was the great trauma in our history. The causes, the results, the bitterness that still exists, I went to grad school in Louisiana and there's still people down there who think the South will rise again and they will say that to you. Um, The effect that the Civil War has had on education and legislation. And I have said, and many of you have heard me say many times, until we talk about race, the Civil War will never be over. We have to have this discussion. And it may be painful. Frankly, it's painful for all of us for different reasons. Um, slavery is, is a system that has existed not just with African Americans throughout history. But what, do, what is slavery? What does it do? to the
2: enslaved
1: and it gives them absolutely no power and in the case of the slaves from Africa that we brought here for cheap labor and it's always an economic thing so you cannot take economics out all of this the civil war was about economics it's about slavery because that was the cheap labor and that was the economics. Do you have a question?
4: It dehumanizes people.
1: It dehumanizes people. It makes them less than. Yes, very good way to describe it. During slavery, families were split up. Black people were seen as less than. It was against the law in many places to learn to read, to have any education at all. Why do you think there was this it, such vehemence against this group of people? Okay, Rondalyn.
3: No, that's what you're here for. Um, the difference between American slavery um, and how it was instituted was that it was the first time in which slavery was instituted on basis of color and country of origin, where slavery, you know, was, was common in war time. Oh yeah. And, you know, people were enslaved, but in the case of the United States, to be associated with being black in that time period, you were enslaved and you were considered less than, so any type of connection to blackness meant that you were less than everyone else. So that is where that um, thinking of, you know, the, the dehumanizing and the stigma associated with being black, because it means you're at the very bottom.
1: And what effect do you think that that had on the slaves? How they felt about themselves? And what effect did it have on the whites? Because you can't have one without the one discussion without the other. For whites, I think uh, there's a four-letter word that expresses it: fear. F E A R. You thought I was going to say something no, else, didn't you? <laughs> um, I think there was the fear because somehow, and I'm not really sure where all this started, but some of you who maybe had more English classes than I did might remember or different history classes, but black was always considered dire and bad. White was the light and what we think of when we think of God. And people, and and I don't know where that came from, but there was that feeling, and you must realize that in much of the South, prior to the Civil War, there were many areas that were majority slaves. There were more black people than there were white people. And so that fear of, uh, and after Nat Turner's rebellion uh, in the 1830s, this, this made everything even worse because everybody thought, oh, those people are going to rebel and they're going to come kill us. And so we have to do something, not letting the slaves learn to read, for one. Uh, we have to do something to keep them down. So fear seems to be then and now. And we will. you saw as you read this book how our various presidents have played on that. Politicians play on that—the uh, the crime that is played up, much greater than it really is. The drug crisis, exaggerated in certain communities, but that fear does a job. And again, that may be why we have the president we have now, because of instilling the fear.
5: Yes, ma'am. You know, one of the things that I associate with what you're saying about fear, is even true with our homeless shelters. Oh, really? Yes, because when I first started working at St. Benedict's, there was always the excuse of the danger of it. Uh Uh-huh. And now the same is true. I'm hearing things about my crossroads where I volunteer. And I think that's very interesting that when people have less than we do, We, for some reason, are fearful. We don't listen to people and have sympathy like we should and learn. That's That's a good
1: point because, again, it comes back to economics. If you have a lot of stuff, you're probably going to have a burglar alarm and you're going to be scared that somebody's going to come steal your stuff. The less stuff you have, the less you have to fear.
6: But when when you identify any grouped as the other. Yes. That you are always fearful of that other. For, for fear they will rise up. For fear that they will take your power take, away from you. Yes.
1: And and you've hit upon the very crux of the book, the fear of having the power taken away. And the reason that all the things she talks about, the all of the amendments, all of the things that the Supreme Court through the years has done, the language of our political parties was to take away power. It's not about being black, and you all, excuse me, but you've heard this term. I'm sure you've been called it, Rondolin. Being an uppity black is where the problem is. Being a black who has ambition and wants to succeed and just might threaten your job. one that doesn't know their place. One that doesn't know their place, and that's well, we women have, have experienced that for a long time too. <laughs> Keep that woman home in the kitchen where she belongs. I've had that said about me.
6: No, I need to go work in a northern university. <laughs> is it better?
1: Uh, I'm not black. Ah, uh, and that, and that is, but, that's...
6: But my, but my black friends, I think we tell you that... that, it that is, at least a little it is, yeah. I'm not
1: saying there are issues. No, there, there are, sometimes the issues are more subtle, but I think uh, once you get out of the South, Uh, What was his name? Uh, George Wallace said that everybody hated and feared black people. That everybody, that in the South, everybody hated and feared black people. And he said, everybody in America is Southern. And during his time when he was running for president, if you think about it, and as much as I love the South, my son lives in Louisiana, and it's not a pretty picture. The, the 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 things have not changed so much, but uh, in here when she talks about the great migration, we find things changed. oh
7: I'm going to interrupt you just for a minute. Oh
1: yes, oh. I couldn't figure out what I I have guy. the mic. <laughs> <laughs> it was from above. It was God.
7: <laughs> I'm going to interrupt you for a commercial. I'm I'm going to say some things that are hard to say because they're hard for me to think about, and this is about. The beginning, you you're kind of in the middle of American history, um, but at the beginning, when I think about what it would take for me to be a slave owner and to justify that to myself, and all the things that I do as a slave owner to justify that to myself, I'm going to tell myself. And and I said this was going to be hard to say, and so it's going to be much harder to hear. Okay. I'm going to tell myself that I'm superior.
2: Mm-hmm.
7: That this this is a, that in order for me to 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 justify to myself owning and working somebody, I'm going to think of them like I would think of a horse. Or a cow. I I grew up on farms, so this is meaningful to me. Um, And and everything I've heard you say and others say, the fear, the the unequal numbers, and the fear that came out—all of that's true. But but the the people who began with this and lived with it—they had to convince themselves that they were what they were doing was right. And, and so to
1: convince themselves it was right, but more than right that it was necessary. Thomas Jefferson bought yeah. slaves, but he thought it was a horrible institution. He struggled his whole adult life on yeah. how to do away yeah, with it. It it, it but is, but what that we, we see by the time the Civil War comes is the conflict between industrialism and agriculture. I,
7: I do understand that. It's just it's just that one of the things I have to wrestle with to confront all all of the dreadful things that have happened is is that um, we have to own that there was some part of ourselves or our ancestors that treated other human beings like animals and convinced themselves that that was true and didn't recognize their own animalness. I think that's about all I got to say. It's it's yeah, it's, it's really I icky, mean, but it's the down there at the bottom. True, but
1: it is not true of all. Slave owning, period, was a wrong. And I suspect that most slave owners knew there's something not right here. But it was justified by the Bible. And we have people today in this town who have religions that still justify slavery by their form of Christianity. Well, there are a lot of things described in the Bible that I personally don't agree with. But I'm saying that this was this was how they justified when when you do something wrong, you always try to find some reason to
3: justify. Well I know I shouldn't have done this, but I just wanna actually, you do
1: have to realize there were different different kinds of people. And I push that I do that text? No, you
2: wouldn't
1: yeah, you wouldn't. Well, I'll tell you, we could find... If we go out to Walmart right now and we talk to people, we can find some people who still believe
3: that. I think part of what you're, ta- what you're describing is cognitive dissonance and how people justify doing the wrong thing by normalizing the wrong that they do. And part of that is through the manifest destiny uh, complex that they had at this time, thinking that God gave them this inalienable right to own people, to be better than, and to be superior. But I'm with you. How does a person get to that point? Well, where they, yes.
1: We, we do have to understand the differences in times. We're speaking as educated people who have been exposed to a lot of things. I'm not defending them. I'm just saying uh, when we look, for instance, I still think Thomas Jefferson was a very great man and did very great things. But there was the feeling that, and we still do it with the people we're not letting into our country, supposedly, that white is best that there is that manifest destiny that God intended for us to do certain things. We in this room don't accept that but we have to, we have to understand that some people did and do if we're going to figure out how to fight this problem, I think. Um, I think we have to own it in our own personal history. Well, I think we do. But I don't think you... <laughs> there's a difference between recognizing it or owning it as you say and saying, oh, what bad people we are or we were, we're trying to move beyond that. I don't think there's...
2: Well, and I do think that the collective guilt...
1: There is a collective...
0: ...of, of people who disagree but didn't do anything... Is like in thin, Germany. And sometimes that fuels yeah. this kind of uh, hatred. Yeah. yeah. The, the feeling of being threatened by the other.
1: And all, all, I keep going back to economics, but President Andrew Johnson was a poor white. And if you study his presidency and his beginning to undo Reconstruction, it's about the fact that he was a poor white. He didn't see anybody giving him 40 acres and a mule. And so simple, in, in a very simplistic way, he saw this as wrong as many people do today, about welfare or whatever. So we do have to try to get into their minds. It doesn't make it right, but it's still about economics. Uh, It was a cheap labor source. Even Lincoln said there wouldn't have been a Civil War if there hadn't been black people, that that was necessary. And he wanted, at the end of the Civil War, to start a black republic in Texas. If you'll read people who were discharged, black soldiers, disproportionately were when they came out of the army at the end of the war, and it might be interesting for you to know, there were 179,000 black soldiers fighting for the Union in the Civil War. That's 10% of the army. And there were another 19,000 in the Navy. And the jobs they held, it wasn't until quite late in the war that they got to carry guns because of that fear thing. They dug ditches, they guarded places at Petersburg. They were the first to storm into the crater and be blown up, but they were not given full citizenship as it were even in that. Our courthouse here in Orangeburg was burned because black troops were quartered in it. Again, I think it's that fear, but for there to be real reconstruction, which she talks about, you have to be full citizens. Hmm. It's also anger, but doesn't anger
2: come from fear? Well, it, it, comes, from a, it comes from a lot of things, but, but that's where the white range comes in, is, is the drilas were just pissed
1: off. Oh, they were angry, but I still think there was fear there. I think fear makes us react in all kinds of strange ways. Anger is the first stage of denial. Anger is the first stage of denial. Okay, you want to elaborate on that? Well, I'm a nursing student.
8: Basic, yeah, it's basic behavioral health. Yeah, um, anger is the first stage of denial. So people typically go through um, anger, depression, and acceptance.
1: And they probably don't always get to acceptance. That's that's a good point. I think what contributes
6: also to the fear is um, people for a long time just generally having kind of a scarcity perspective that there isn't enough for everyone
3: yes
1: and
6: so if if what uh, if you take you know if you have something then i have left mm-hmm. and 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 nobody wants that but i mean i think that that's a that's a mind frame yeah the dualistic is part of the dualistic mind frame that, that's functioning
1: that, today yes. Well, yes well that's what yes. i was going to yes. ask yes. don't yeah, you
6: think yeah I
1: exactly. that them. somehow even though our Christianity, those of us who are Christians, and I suspect that the Torah and other holy books also teach that you should share and love the other as yourself, we never really seem to have gotten that message completely because I want my share, and frankly, I want part of your share. No,
6: no, no. no, no. I moved just a little bit farther. Oh, as long as you have an other you will you will you will never have you will never have that that spirit that doesn't correct me. Yeah. Uh, we're well, all in it together. This yes. rises even, even in times of great plenty, yes I mean, there's yes. that that's still that need to
0: hoard for yourself to stockpile. You
1: that and that must be a, part a part primeval, behavior. yeah. But Now, I had an interesting question in relation to that, now it's left me, okay. Um, anyway, for there to be real Reconstruction, there had to be, African Americans had to be full citizens. Okay, to be a full citizen, obviously you've got to be free, but what else do you need? You need education, and I'm sorry, Ronald will be back in a minute, because this was one of the things that she made several comments about, A, you've got to be free. B, you've got to have an economic basis for freedom. This was what, with women for so long, I don't care how free you are, if you don't have any economic security, you're trapped. And you've got to have schools and access to them to get a good education, because during slavery, people were not, there there were generations of subservience and no education. Did you have your hand up? Oh,
2: no, no. Oh, okay.
1: Stretching. Okay, um, so the Thirteenth Amendment set the blacks free, but they had to have the vote. Why was it so important to have the vote? She talks about that quite a lot. Supposedly, yes. Right. Oh.
2: Having the vote
1: shows solidarity.
8: This was an accepted change. Yeah. and um, it leaves no room for argument.
1: Ostensibly, that is very true, yes. Uh, unfortunately, freeing the slaves, we've got this vast number of people who yesterday were working for many people. Today, they, they want to be equal to everybody else, so what's going to happen? Um, we immediately began the re-enslavement after the Civil War, because the right to vote was passed for men, but before the 15th Amendment freed the men, the 14th Amendment made African-American citizens. It's important to note that they were made federal citizens, and so you've still got that whole specter of states' rights. Plus, at the same time, and it was back to that tit-for-tat thing. Well, if you're going to make black citizens, then corporations should be citizens too. That's part of the 14th Amendment. And we're still struggling with that. And then very shortly, after the end of Reconstruction, things were going pretty well for a while. We elected black uh, officials, and then the black codes were passed. By I think you said Mississippi was the first. Yeah, and then most of the black states passed the black codes. You had to sign an agreement or a contract with the owner, whoever you were working for. Generally, it was your past owner.
3: And, you know, speaking to that point, going back to the states' rights and us being federal citizens, yeah. that's why a lot of uh, blacks or minorities kind of cringe when people start talking about states' rights. We're going to refer it back to the states. Oh, wow. Because historically, states have not been in favor, especially when you look at certain regions and sections of our country, have not been in favor of minorities having equal access to government or to individual freedoms. So whenever you hear, we hear that, that's like a red flag for us. Yeah. And that's another reason why we have such a big disconnect with the Republican Party as well.
1: Yeah. Because for so long, states' rights, and this was the presumed cause it was one of the causes for the Civil war that the states should have more power than federal government aren't we hearing that every day yes. now
9: that's so, yeah
1: that's and last just summer. last week and somebody can I, I think it was defeated or I don't think it's going to make it through the state legislature but the neighborhood schools that's a code word for re resegregation did it make it all the way
2: through charter schools Charter schools made it through,
1: which can also be a big issue with racism. But I think that the last that I read that the neighborhood schools got caught up somewhere and it wasn't going to be able to make it all the way through the session before the end of the session. And it was particularly important in Louisville. Let's try and see what you had asked here. Well, the Fifteenth Amendment. Once the the black males were given the vote, then we began to see poll taxes, the black codes, we poll taxes, literacy tests. How many of you could quote passages from this Constitution of the United States? Well, that's what was asked of black males who showed up to vote. I might get the first line. I had to do that in high school. You did? Well, we all had to memorize those things in high school, but then we quickly forgot them. Well, there was a case here in Owensboro that you may not be familiar with called Claybrook versus Owensboro. Edward Claybrook uh, was, had children in the school system, and in Owensboro, tax money from blacks went to support black schools. Tax money from whites went to support white schools. Well, I think we all understand that right after the Civil War, blacks didn't own as much property and certainly not as much valuable property. So they took this to the... Uh, Federal District Court in Paducah, and they won, so that all the tax money had to be pooled and divided. Now that still didn't mean that the black schools got their fair share, but it was a landmark decision. It had federal implications. But eventually, even though Plessy versus Ferguson says nothing about that, it that was one of the things that Plessy undid, uh, because Plessy was the separate but equal. And that made Jim Crow the law of the land. So you could have separate cars, you could have separate schools, whatever. And if they were presumably equal, which they were not, um, you could go on. But that was true. Uh, I wish Samuel Tandy had been here tonight because Samuel has a story he shares about how when he was, uh, and somebody who knows Samuel, helped me out, I think that he said he was in what would be middle school. They got new textbooks at his school. They weren't new. They were old and written in and had a bunch of other people's names in them. And he decided he wanted to go to school where he could have new desks and new chairs and new textbooks. So he took himself to the Orangeboro School. I guess it would have been probably Southern Middle School at that time. Mm -hmm.
3: I said probably. I
1: think so. And he went to, even though at that time we had integration, it wasn't it wasn't being really enforced very much at that point. So, that was an example of recognizing the importance of education and that all education is not equal. And I, I've always been very moved by that story. Um, then the Great Migration. After World War I, it's important to know that a lot of African-American men served in World War I. And you'd think if you're going off to fight the war to end all wars, when you come home, somebody's going to care. But that was not the case, but after the Great Migration there were a lot of jobs needing to be filled in the North, in Detroit, in Chicago, and in Cleveland. Uh, And so a lot of Blacks began to try to move to the North and get a good job. And Barbara, why don't you tell us about how the reaction to that in the South?
7: She She told you about the Black Codes after the Civil War that were first passed by Mississippi and then other southern states. And those black codes required that African-Americans had to, in the first 10 days of the year, sign a contract to work for one year with either plantation owners, mining operations, or lumbering operations. And if they didn't, they would be arrested, taken to jail, and then their laborer would be auctioned off to the highest bidder. So, for all practical purposes, they were they were enslaved again. And this was and this was by state law, reinforced in the courts. World War One, uh, World War One, immigration to the United States decreased because of the war. However, orders to the factories went up because of the European war. And they needed workers, so they sent people down south to recruit African Americans to work in the northern factories. And the southern employers just had a fit, and they pulled all kinds of stunts. They um, would, uh, would arrest people uh, boarding trains to go north. They would stop trains and sideline the cars for days at a time. Now this interrupted with, with commerce. Interstate commerce, and, and so that caused them some trouble. But they would do things like order the train ticket sellers not to sell tickets to African Americans. And since this was all done at a local level, um, it would it would be like um, like going to the bus station. And and telling somebody who you knew, and you knew where they lived, and you knew their family, what's going to happen to you if you sell tickets to African Americans. They arrested whole collars of people and wouldn't let them go. They did everything they could. They passed laws that anyone that came down to recruit African Americans to work in the North, that that was illegal. Uh, one state charged $25,000 fines, which today would be like $2 million.
1: No, it would be a lot.
7: Uh, in other states, the fine was $1,000, which, which was still a lot. So they did everything they could to stop it. And nevertheless, blacks fled north because, because they were being treated atrociously. It wasn't just the labor that was going on down there. It was against the law for an African American to give an insulting gesture. They could be arrested. And put in jail for giving someone an insulting gesture, whatever that might be.
1: Thank you. That that's and a very. I'm
7: not going to talk about the lynchings because it's beyond horrific.
1: Well, it was during this time that there were a lot of lynchings, but we're all familiar with the case of Emmett Till, which is in the 1950s. But we now know that Emmett Till really didn't do anything. The woman that said that he made some kind of a whistled at her, that's what it was. Now, she has retracted that since it never happened. But Emmett Till was killed and mutilated. His mother, when she brought the body back to Chicago, insisted on an open casket. And that, we all need to remember that incident, as much as anything, as the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement. Because that happened before the Freedom Marches. It happened before a lot of the other things that happened. And people... Really had their eyes opened by that. Um, but people like, up
2: north. And Well, I think. African Americans knew very
1: well. African Americans knew, but African Americans were powerless. It was very common.
2: Um, Lynchers were very. Oh, yes, and they were, well, horrendous.
1: But to be honest, people who were growing up in the North, they weren't. I mean, you heard things
2: well, that like didn't so
6: believe white Well, we were young, for one
1: thing, but
2: I don't think it's not reading. I
1: think that that's part of a white privilege. We
2: had parents. We had grandparents.
1: And I think some of them, and some of them knew. But but the point is that the people who knew these things were coming on were often, often powerless. The Great Migration, though, did not fulfill its promise. Uh, once the African-Americans got to the North, they realized that people up there were afraid of them also. They did not want their jobs. If you are poor, it still comes back to economics, if you are poor, a poor white, you don't want somebody else coming in and taking your job or forcing the wages down. And at first, blacks were kept in certain neighborhoods, like the south side of Chicago. But if they tried to move, uh, there's a, a horrendous story that she recounts in here, Of a black man, a professional man, who moves into a white neighborhood and what happened to him and how he was framed. Y'all remember the incident I'm talking about? It's absolutely horrible. So one of the questions that, that we have down here is how did the Great Migration change the people in the cities of the North? This was one of your questions, Ronald. So how did the Great Migration, people in the North kind of thought they were okay when there were no black people there. Well,
3: when I wrote uh, the question, I wrote it with the intent of saying that, of uh, wanting to people to get that, it increased the competition of already scarce resources, you know, like jobs, you know, and access to, you know, quality housing. So when they came up, you know, from the South, it was just another competitor that they had to fight against so I think that they were kind of insulted in a way when they were recruited to come up, you know. Um,
1: you mean the whites in yes, the North? Yes, yes. Yeah, there were
3: all these beautiful promises. Right. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, I think that's very true. Uh, today, I would say problems in the North are equally as bad, if not worse. Uh, I don't know if you would consider Louisville North or not, but certainly... A little north, but Chicago, many of the big cities, Detroit, and these problems, largely, I think, and correct me if you all don't agree with it, but I think they still largely come back to poverty.
3: Access to money and power.
1: Access to money and power to loans, so you can buy a house.
3: And you can throw in redlining, you know, redlining. Yes. Yes. Had a lot to do with it, and you can look at how the the suburban Mm -hmm. communities were built as a of this influx of yeah. you know African Americans coming from the South and then they have to start to change, mm-hmm. you know, the distribution of wealth because that's where wealth starts, it's mm-hmm. the ownership of homes. Exactly. So if you limit the access, then you will limit a person's opportunity to obtain wealth, which is a direct effect to what we see going on with black families today. And not having you know, that nest egg, something mm-hmm. to start off with, you know, when they get married or whatever, or to pass on to their children, because they
1: never had the access. I never had it. Um, during the Great Migration, we've got people like W.E.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey, and Marcus Garvey had, at one time, a Back to Africa movement, deciding that, well, if we weren't wanted here, We're going to go back to Africa. That didn't work real well, but it is important to know. This goes back to pre-Civil War, the abolitionists, all these movements, the people who wanted to free. They knew slavery was wrong, but they did not want them in their towns or in their factories. And this is why, not in my backyard. backyard. This is why Henry Clay uh, started the American Colonization Society to send to have people free their slaves and send them to Liberia, uh, which was one of our very important allies during World War II. And it was a woman here in Kentucky, Josephine, uh, not Josephine, um, Emily Tubman, who freed, she realized how wrong slavery was. She married a very wealthy planter down in Georgia, and she freed her slaves and paid for them to go to Liberia. Her reasoning, as the best I can understand, was not to get rid of them, but it was to protect these people that she had had. had. And she gave them the choice. If you don't like it, I'll pay for you to come back. And at least one of her uh, male uh, slaves did come back. And she could not technically free him, though, until after the war, because in Georgia they passed laws that she couldn't free the slaves.
3: is a Kentucky connection to the Back to Africa movement that was pushed by... Henry Clay,
1: he was her godfather and Emily Tubman uh, was from Frankfurt and this was a very, she was very, in fact she knew uh, the the Alexander Campbell and those guys. She was a member of what is now the Disciples of Christ Church, yeah. Yeah. She a very fascinating woman and she knew that it was wrong and did everything she could to free them but here was a case where the laws of the state, the state's rights, uh, interfered, but, but she did. But overall, the point I'm making is that people felt if we send the slaves back, then we won't have the competition with the factory workers, the immigrants coming in, and we won't have to worry about that problem of integration. So, the, did, uh, another question that Rhonda asked is, does anybody have a personal story? and since there are only two African-Americans here, maybe one of you will, uh, did any of your families go to, say, Chicago or Detroit during the 20s? Do you know? Unfortunately, most of us don't ask our families until too late, a lot of questions. But an awfully lot of people did leave the South, and, and uh, certainly here, a lot of people moved out of the Pleasant Ridge area, Rondolin, uh, to take jobs in town or in other towns.
3: Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, it was before the 20s, but in 1909 you know, uh George Washington Carver came there. Yes. And it was a really big push for, uh, to send a lot of the, the farm workers of uh, their kids Yes. So a lot of them, you know, became teachers and came back and gave back to that community. So, but within my personal family, great grand, uh, a great aunt and uncle, they migrated to Detroit. So, and then my great grandfather moved up to Kentucky, which was different than Alabama uh, to work in the coal mines and blacks in the coal industry here was uh, people
1: were actively recruited. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the industries that, that did recruit former slaves particularly. Well, Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954, she spends a lot of time on, and her contention is that Brown was never fully implemented. And I think this is, to me, this may have been the most important part of the book because we all, this this was supposed to be the, the real liberation. This was supposed to be what really made you a citizen, but in talking with people in Owensboro, there are two sides to that. The black schools, you talk about all the people who went back to become teachers, uh, the black schools were the center of the black community in this area, and this was true other places, too. That was Those were the professionals. Those were the people who set the role models. And after Brown, most African-American teachers were not rehired into the white schools. And so you had a minority. And I've always thought it's kind of interesting, we celebrate one month of black history each year. It's really hard to cram all those, what, 300 and some years into one month. Uh, But it's
3: what it is merger, The I think it was the 50th anniversary, was last summer uh, at our D.C. conference. Oh. Uh, to, uh, and they showed how the merger impacted, they did like a skit and yeah. uh, commemorated uh, that event. But a lot of black teachers did lose yeah. their jobs because they weren't credentialed enough uh, yeah. to take on the positions once the merger happened. It helped in some regards. Uh, it did. It and helped them. And, you know, things of that nature, but a lot of people
1: got left behind. But the truth of the matter is education is transformative, and without equal education, it doesn't matter who you are, you're not going to be as successful. Uh, Judy?
7: Well, I just, I just
0: wanted to say that I, I had a different experience because I grew up in Cleveland, and... Grew up with the thought in my head that we were we had the right way, you know we were superior because we integrated and we went to school together and we did all these things together and it wasn't until I got older that I realized that our separate ours was just as separate but but not equal as it was in the south uh, I can remember i mean our all the way through school, blacks and whites went to school together, but socially, they were separate. And I think educationally, because of that social separation, uh, like you said, there were, there were no black teachers in our schools, so they didn't, the kids didn't have someone who looked like them to look up to. Um, yes, we rode together on the, on the city buses, and we sat next to each other on the city buses. But it was, it was almost like a, a class struggle, a class separateness. And uh, so it was really, um, it was very interesting to me. I, at one point in my life, we lived in Maine for 10 years where you couldn't find a black person. I mean, it, just, it was about as lily white as it could be, and that's where my children were born. And I really struggled with the idea, do I want to raise them in this atmosphere and it just happened that we moved to an area in Florida that was very diverse and I said, we can't go back, you know, it would be, it would be, it would be going backwards. But the whole idea that uh, northern integration was somehow better uh, was planted very early uh, in, in my experience and uh, it took me a long time to appreciate the not so subtle discrimination that took place. Mm-hmm.
2: 76. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and part of this yeah. was the neighborhood school. You know,
0: part of it was redlining and neighborhood schools and all that. And by the way, the neighborhood school bill did get stopped.
1: Yeah, I thought and it had, they, uh, just
0: they decided to to leave it be because the charter schools were
7: taking.
1: Place. Yeah, and and well, just that's that a discussion stop. for another well,
7: time. one of the things that the book White Rage uh, details is. The various states and school districts' responses to um, Brown versus the Board of Education and getting the, and the desegregation order. I was I was in um, I um, grade school when this happened, and then middle school. And I I remember when Central High in Little Rock was integrated, and I remember the the. Um, the troops there that first kept the kids out of school, and then the federal troops that were sent to escort the kids to school. But what I didn't realize was that after that media brouhaha, the governor of Arkansas closed the schools for a year, and with, with private donations and with $176 per white students there were private schools from the government paid for by the gover- government by the arkansas state government private schools were set up for white kids to go to and black kids had no education in arkansas for a year and that kind of thing didn't just happen in arkansas it it happened else, elsewhere where there were fights over integration in the schools so one of the, I mean, we, we've talked a little bit about, or some of us know a little bit about, the unequalness of resources given to schools in various neighborhoods, but we don't realize how the, the impact on kids that are kept out of school for a year, mm-hmm. and, and then when you put the school system back together again, it's no more equal than it was before. Mm-hmm. You've got these private schools, and then you've got the public schools, which are underfunded. So, and, and that's the scenario And this sounds just now. a whole lot like well, yes it does. charter schools.
1: It, it, it is. And well, you had, uh, pass it back to this young lady. Um, speak on
9: in thinking about school today, um, you know, we talk about schools have been integrated now. And just as an educator myself, um, I see um, we, we have our students together now. However, I look at the way that students are treated, um, not in a bad way. But a lot of times you see the black, the young black males, um, they're treated kind of with kid gloves. Um, and, you know, you see them sleeping in class and it's okay because he can't do this or he won't do that. Um, and you see that happening. And I think, you know, that's no better than when schools were, inter- were, were not integrated mm-hmm. and we weren't allowing those students to be educated because we're still kind of, um, in a sense, it's just modern day um I see the same thing um you talked about how once the schools were integrated um there was still the separation, and you still kind of see that today um with students um and so just I don't know just my thoughts on on what I'm seeing today there there's not a lot of difference it's just a it's just a new it's just a new year it's a new time, but just a different way of doing the same thing
1: and this this is so important because the education is. Is the basis for everything, and as we've had white flight and the many of the so-called Christian schools started, uh, and and I think now with charter schools, I think we'll see that be worse.
10: There are many stories that I can actually um, go through, but uh, first, before I, I mention anything, I do want to say that you know obviously there are lots of things that need to be done right here in Owensboro. I was able to grow up in a very multicultural, multi ethnic area in Los Angeles. And so really because my parents, although they were prejudiced, didn't really push it. I was able to experience and get to know the Asian families that lived in the neighborhood, the black families that lived in the neighborhood, and therefore there's no, nothing. So no matter what education does, or what we do in the classroom, or what we do in the newspaper and the books, we're dealing with parents who indoctrinate, and uh, ed, you know, to their children to follow the same beliefs that they have. And people have a very difficult time changing, uh, making changes like that and a lot of people break out of it, but so many do not. Second comment, I am very disappointed with the attendance for here tonight, because these are topics which our city leaders need to look at, recognize, and address. And the third... (laughs) Thank you, I'm glad you did. And the third thing is, when we do things like this, which are so important, how can we get the message to the people that need to hear it? So yes, I mean when we're talking about the, the finances of the district or the city, they're talking about cutting back on the Human Relations Commission services and things like that. It where the reality is we should be expanding those services, not reducing them. So where do we go or how we develop a program to really educate the community to understand the problems that we encounter, that we have, and to overcome them?
1: Okay, anybody want to throw a, something out? Yeah, and uh, in, in I am very sorry. I thought we would have a big crowd again tonight. This is a painful book to read for white people, and
6: perhaps... Yeah, and I, I, think,
0: that's, I think the title is part of it. But I, you know, when we, the last, just one second, the, the yeah,
1: white rage. Oh, <laughs>
0: thank you for asking the question. Uh, you know, last month when we showed the the film thirteenth, and it the topic was the price of prison. We had three times as many people as we have today, and sometimes it's just a matter of happenstance it's chance it's you know no i didn't get to read the book no i have too many it's the first day of spring the dairy queen was absolutely <laughs> bombarded i mean it was smashed full of people yeah,
1: but there's
0: no UK game. not tonight that's true the uk women are playing tonight thank you very much
1: yes sir interestingly enough there no they not no, uh, no the meeting on um Nonviolence is going on at this same time they will try claudia ramish and others oh uh, she was here earlier and they will try to coincide so that our our meetings don't clash but that is where a lot of our people are but but i do think
0: that as, as arnie was saying that socialization that having people interact with each other on an individual level is what makes the difference you know if if you grow up in a family that's very very biased and you work with someone that you like who's different and that your family would not approve of you begin to learn that that person is an individual and that maybe just maybe the kinds of things that you they've been feeding your little brain all those years are not quite accurate but it's it's a long process and i think one of the things that can help is you know in school if kids uh kind of click with people of the people who look like them you know whether it's what they wear or what their skin color is it's it's kids who look like them that they're comfortable with maybe we need to be able to have more activities where kids inter- really integrate in their interactions you know uh Sports used to be that kind of thing, but sports have gotten extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. So then those are not as available as they used to be. So I, I don't know what the answer is, but I think that it's along the line of getting the integrated socialization as much as anything else.
1: I think that's a good point. Um, Rondalyn asked me to uh, bring up one of the questions that she had come up with. It says, if we look at the states who set the narrative for textbooks That are used in the classroom. Our biggest red state is Texas. What Texas does with its textbooks influences textbook markets across the country, especially the South and the Midwest, and it sets the tone for what is taught in the classroom. The narratives portrayed are often not inclusive or diverse. This in turn hinders relationships and a full understanding of the relevance or importance of different minority groups' contributions, which lessens the value of who they are and what they contribute to society. How would this mindset affect the laws formed that would negatively affect minority people? Did I say that right? (laughs) It is a mouthful.
3: When a person has so much control of the formation and the foundation of an individual's thinking, decision-making, and it lays the foundation of how the perceptions of the world are mm-hmm. throughout their life. So if you have this bias uh, slant to how you teach or even how the books are even laid out, yeah. I mean... It has it has great ramifications. It does. I mean, it just the simplest. I mean, and that seems like that's so simple a textbook, but it carries so much work weight because words are carry so much weight.
1: It also has something to do with how well we educate our teachers because a good teacher wouldn't just use that textbook, or would certainly go through and choose or add to. But I suspect. I know that there are many who just use the textbook and if it doesn't include anything about minorities, they don't get included.
10: Or the administration demands that they follow that
1: textbook. And that probably you've been in administration, you would know that better than most of us. What did you say? The administration demands that you follow that textbook. Yes, yes sir.
8: said in Texas there's going to be this disparity to where you have a majority of white people on the council that decide what content are we putting in our textbooks and the key I think there is to decrease that amount of disparity Um, you have to go into these councils and add you know various minorities in order to have multiple perspectives Um, a good a good example I can use is when I when I graduate nursing school, I have to take an NCLEX exam. And if you look into the NCLEX, the people who make it, their board is is vastly, um, you know, jumbled up. It's not just one specific race and a couple. It's of diverse. Places. So, really, that's the key with anything, and uh, yeah. we have to be more aware of that.
1: That's a very good point. And that, that diversity is is definitely part of it. Well, we're going to be, we don't have a whole lot of time left. Um, the Civil Rights Movement, very important. And after the Civil Rights Acts of 64 and 65, things got better by minorities in this country. Uh, I remember talking to W.A. Howard, who just uh, died this past week. And he, he would get very emphatic and very emotional about the, how wonderful it was when the Civil Rights Act was passed and how that changed things. I'm not sure, well on the short term I think it did because this was a man who had been discriminated against when he was a soldier. Uh, He had a lot of stories to tell. It it was a different time. Um, But those laws began to make people more equal and to give more power Uh, to African Americans, and so then we had the new Jim Crow around 1968. Nixon and Reagan, and with support from the Supreme Court, began to change things, and it was through language. All of a sudden, they began to put light on the KKK, and so those are the bad guys, those are the racists. So, you might be a racist, but if you didn't wear a white sheet, you weren't the bad guys. Then Reagan talked about how he made fun of Johnson's Great Society and uh, talked about how that we were turning over hard-earned tax dollars to slum dwellers to live in posh government-subsidized housing and were using food stamps instead of working. People believed this. Many people did. Uh, And Then when Nixon was elected in 1968, that was the end of the Democratic Party in the South. We may see it come back, but he began to talk about crime. Crime and blackness became synonymous, and so we began to see things worsen. Uh, and she talks, and we don't have time to go over them, but the Supreme Court cases. Um, remember the case of Alan Vakey, the white guy who filed suit because he was being discriminated because he was a white male? In medical school, I think it was at one of the state universities in California. That began to chip away at the quota system, at the encouraging blacks to attend and get higher education. But the most egregious was the war on drugs. In 1981, things were not really that bad. But the Reagan administration was trying to figure out what to do down Nicaragua, money was needed, and... The government was involved in drug running. We know that. And the beginning of big-time drug use coming into places like Los Los Angeles. Uh, I'm sure there were already gangs there, but they helped to disseminate those drugs and then began the re-enslaving of African Americans by putting them in jail. Once you're in jail for a felony, and you don't have to... It doesn't have to be that big to be a felony. What is it? Is it $5,000 or is it less? just because you Well, it certainly is with drugs, but it's... To, to be a felony crime, like felony theft would be...
3: $500.
1: 500
3: Yeah. Well, sort some, so, some uh, like child support, Yeah. flagrant child support, you can be a convicted felon because of flagrant child support you know simple things that are not but it will still plague but you but it still sends it's people like your to right prison to vote,
1: yes. disproportionately uh, people of color um, so this is this is really and if you saw the movie 13 that's what they talk about the reenslavement by incarceration of particularly young black males um, we mentioned the election of obama high, high turnout of blacks and Hispanics and Asians and that was the problem. McCain and the Republican Party looked at that and they said, oh my god, only about 8% of those people were Republicans. This is not a good sign. And so that is when the photo IDs, the making it harder to vote. And uh, some states have tougher laws than others but there has been a concerted effort to keep young people, old people, and black people, particularly people of color, from voting. If you can't vote, then you're not a full citizen. Um, The NAACP says, and I probably should have you say this, uh, Rondolin, that the ID requirement would eliminate more than 6 million African-Americans, nearly 3 million Latinos. the the requirements that have been passed you have to have in Georgia and I think this is still the law in Georgia it could have changed but I don't think so you have to have three separate categories of documentation to get a government issued ID which is what you have to show to vote proof of citizenship which would be a birth certificate or a passport people who don't have a lot of money don't usually have passports Social security number, you either have to have the card or a W 2 form, and a W-2 form means that you've worked recently. You can't get one otherwise. And you have proof of residence. And in a society in which many poor people live multifamily dwellings, um, that is harder because you usually have to take a utility bill or a bank statement. And those those two things are, are not that easy to get. The
2: in one person's and name, exactly. six adults living in a particular residence. Only one of them's name is on the building. So and that's only the only one. So one of those six people has that documentation.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's a, a very pejorative. To point out, too, we don't have a full functioning voting Rights
3: Act. Yes. The plan provision that uh, gave uh, states who had a history of being discriminatory or making it harder for blacks and minorities to vote. They had to report to the federal government any changes that they made uh, to the voting laws to restrict people's voting. Well, they said after the election of President Obama, they they said that that part of the VRA was not necessary. So uh, the Voting Rights Act itself isn't fully functional. Exactly. We can see the results of it by the, this past the governor's offices and this mm-hmm. past election.
1: This was in 2013, Shelby County versus Holder. I, I, I remember at the time wondering why more people weren't really, really upset and doing something about it because basically what they said was the Voting Rights Act was now obsolete and we didn't need to, they didn't seem to understand that the reason those states had been complying was because they had to and they had to report. Uh, And and so we're seeing more of that. Um, Mitt Mitt Romney declared that he wished this president would learn to be an American. You know, it's this kind of, again, the words do hurt. Um, And then we had Trayvon Martin and Ferguson, uh, police violence and murders and Dylan Roof on a mission to take our country back, but then we had our now president saying, we're going to take our country back. White Citizens' Councils have been revived. They're now called Council of Conservative Citizens, but they're still the same thing. And these groups use their so-called Christianity to justify the things that they want to see, and they refer to blacks as retrograde species of humanity.
3: And those are the same councils that were formed to combat integration back in the Exactly,
1: days. the white the councils. More than 150 years after the Civil War, we have chosen not to move forward. We've allowed rage and fear to feed discrimination, disfranchisement, illiteracy, and an inequitable criminal justice system. So the question that is raised by Carol Anderson, I'm trying to see if we have any more questions here to ask, see what you have, is what do we do now? How do we change this? It, it has to start on a local level and we have to start now. This room should have been full to overflowing. We've got to get organized and, and do things. Rondolin, what questions did I not ask that you'd like to have asked? <laughs> Um, one that you asked, did it give you a better understanding or insight into the struggles and the oppressive nature of the laws upon black families and the community as a whole? Yes. Because where, what, what was it, uh, I think it was Dwight Eisenhower said that where one person suffers we all do.
3: Whatever impacts you guys, like, say, for instance, the unemployment rate for blacks is always double. It's yes. It's not more. Oh, not way in more. the general population. But you have legislation or, you know, people with policies that constantly say, well, get a job. Well, okay, hire me. Yeah. <laughs> Give me a chance or opportunity or bring those industries. Into our communities.
1: Train, train, train the workforce.
3: People, you know, instead of, instead of outsourcing the jobs or, you know, bringing people from out of town. I was watching a town hall meeting, and this isn't just uh, uh, so much for black people, it can be for rural people too. Uh, in West Virginia, mm. they were saying that the drug problem was so bad, but the people were wanting jobs and they built the jail to provide jobs for the people within the community, but no one could pass the drug test. Yeah. So they had to bust people in, in order to fill the jobs that were meant for them. Yeah. So I'm saying up to say, we have a, a drug problem here. A lot of our young people here can't take advantage of the opportunities that may be afforded to them because of the problems that they're dealing with. And we as a community have to come up with some type of resolution, some, some answers to, to these problems or else we're going to have a whole generation of kids that are going to lose out. You know? and, and we have to really start to work towards uh, coming up with you know, better solutions to educate our kids yeah. you know, and become more involved.
1: Okay. So. Who else? Your, your feelings about the book, your feelings about the discussion, what did we not cover that you think we should have? Your ideas for what to do next? Anybody? Uh, I'm just wondering
6: if there's anything you might be able to do to um, help with voter registration in
1: this town. That's a good question.
6: So, door to door and help people get their ID or I don't know no.
1: I mean, yeah. if, if that if it's a photo ID that's blocking people then what can be done to
6: well, Kentucky does not have a photo ID. Yeah. yeah. Does? Well, they yeah.
0: ask you to show it when you go vote. Yes.
5: yes. It vote? does not. Have, I, I yes. it does not have to My be a photo ID. It does not. Okay. okay. I mean, I thought I just read that. That's
1: the, why I was asking. Okay. That okay. You vote for, Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. There are well, three, there
0: are three you want to take that? Personal acquaintance. That's right. the first one. If, you, if the poll worker knows you, if you have a photo ID like your driver's license, or you can
6: bring a utility bill or any a credit well, I know, card. But that's talking about how hard that is, and what I'm but saying you know, no, is, what can be, we do to minimize that hardship for people who might have it to maximize the vote ability in this town?
0: I would be very interested to know what the percentage is of registered voters in this town. Well, so
1: I think, you think that's where... where that, because that. The numbers, <laughs> even though we have the, a certain number of
6: registered voters, we only have like 30% of that vote. That's where the problem is. Well, it's they're not that First of all, people, people have to, to be polls. able to vote. No. Yeah.
1: But I think, I think maybe what you all are both getting at is educating people well, about right. voting, why they need to vote... Uh, maybe some people have just given up, but uh, educating them to what they need, where their polling place is, because we have this pathetic voting record. Well, just incredible. Like
3: the primary, the is coming up in 2018.
1: And everybody who breathes know, should be at the polls.
3: organizing, you know, and being more involved. I see you at meetings and and several other people, you know, at meetings mm-hmm. and working together. But we need to hit the ground now.
5: Yeah.
3: Uh, canvassing the neighborhoods. Yes. I know we have sent out, uh, we're going to send out letters uh, to people, but we need to go door-to-door. Going
1: door-to-door is the most door-to-door, effective thing.
3: making phone calls. But I mean, when are we gonna come together, you know, to do that?
1: suggested a mobile unit, is that something that's possible in Davis County? You mean for registering?
0: For registering. You know, we used to register people at Walmart.
1: Yeah, I remember when we did registered voters I mean, at Walmart. I'd
2: like to take a mobile unit, door to door. It's, yes, well, that's, even better. I you know, mean, if you happen to make a voter's there, registration know. today. I think yeah. it's really Yeah, but, all but it, nobody knows. Yeah. well no, well you have to start somewhere, and you might be surprised what a big difference it makes. Well it's it does. To ask someone you know again, and then to encourage them to ask uh, it, uh, don't, oh, don't leave it behind. You can register to vote online, yeah. And a lot of people have that bill in there. So you can online. teach yourself how to register to vote online. And if you can tell people the grocery store register online on phone you in line at Walmart at Christmas time I mean, there are lots of okay you're
1: assuming that the people who need to register have a smartphone and that they have uh, no, oh, access to a I'm computer not. okay
4: and they're always welcome to come here
1: they, they, there is that and we need yeah, to make sure that they that's know that a very good idea yeah you know,
0: having, having several cent- central places
4: yeah like different
0: community centers around
1: town. yeah, yeah. Churches can be places where Oh can yeah. But I think it's more
6: voter apathy than yeah. I think it, it is, too. Because if
2: you is look at how people people many people we have in our register, those people do have to feel like it's going to make a difference. It's going to make a difference in do. And one thing, this book points out, is why people might feel like it is making a yeah. difference. The cards yeah. are stacked against you. Yes. You, you might not be absolutely
1: excited. Yeah. And that's, that's where the education comes in and advocacy. And I, I don't have the answers for what we should do. But, but that's we're all in different groups where that we can work on these things. It's a matter of uh, Cesar Chavez believed in what you're saying. You talk to one person, then you talk to another person, and they talk to me. And that does work. But we've also got to get out of our comfort zone, get into areas that we might not normally go. I think the door-to-door. Um, I know when I've been handing out political literature in the past, I've been some places where I thought, well, oh, I've never been here before. Uh, but, uh, and, and it can be uncomfortable. I am opposed to the phone thing, Rondolyn, because I am so sick and tired of people calling me. If you call me, I want to talk to you. If somebody calls me about a warranty, I don't want to talk to them. And I'll hang up. I think the personal contact is important anyway. Yeah, it used to be. Okay, Harvey, I wondered why you'd been
2: quiet all night. Oh, I don't talk very much anymore. Really um, what I got out of this book, and what hasn't come out really clearly yet, is that we tend to think that slavery ended in the Civil War.
1: And it didn't, and that's and her
2: point. That it's a progression. And exactly. We're either at the end of the beginning or the beginning of the end. Slavery existed in Egypt, it existed in Rome, it existed in Africa before the Africans came yeah.
1: here. It still exists in a form exactly, yeah. in today's society, and we are not yet at the end of it. But American slavery has been unique in that we were, if not the last, one of the last to. to Say we freed our slaves. But the, the point that I see in this book is that she's showing how, that from the moment the 13th Amendment was passed, even with the other so called reconstruction measures, we were undoing it and re enslaving. Yeah, that's the point you're making, and I think it's a very valid point. Uh, uh, after, after, after reading that book, one of we said to each other,
2: was, says to me the Civil War is over and over? No. <laughs>
1: I taught the Civil War for many years, and the thing that I have always said is, it will never be over until we come to grips with these problems that resulted from slavery. Uh, I, I get less optimistic all the time about the economic situations and how we are going to, because it's very advantageous for the small group of halves to have a lot of poor people. Poor people have no power whether they're white or black. If you're white, though, you can pretend and pass for something else.
2: Just one more thing. One thing that scared me, as Judy talked about her about school experiences, you can see the same thing going on right now in the Burmese community. Ah. Labor contractors out there recruiting people from yes. part of the country coming in near the secondaries to go and work, and they are. Separate in the schools, they keep themselves apart. Their language skills, after four years in high school, are rudimentary. You have to help them into. Go- so the
1: yeah, I th- I think we did have a question that addressed that. I'm trying to see what it was, but yes, that. I guess that's one of the things that that I I think I'd asked. Did anybody get that out of the book? That it's not just african-americans but have we done this to other groups and that's a very yeah
3: anybody who
1: is the other somebody used that term and and, and, and I said think the
3: question was the same type of immigration issues that immigration issues that we see and the effects thereby. do you see any oh.
1: How do you think this narrative of the black experience relates to the immigration issues we're experiencing today? For instance, leaving home country for better opportunities, blacks leaving the south to the north for better opportunities. So how do those parallel? Do you see? Yes. Yes. But that's so they can't vote and have any power. Yeah. Yeah. It's powerlessness, keeping the the epsilons of your society or whatever. The students don't
2: get counseling about what courses they need to take to qualify for college. So they get they graduate from high school and they want to go to the community college.
1: We have native Owensburns
5: who can't do that, huh?
1: <laughs> But no, your point is well made.
5: I was just curious and uh, actually Googled, you know, we all Google, and um, you can get a national uh, registration form to vote. It would seems to me it would be very easy to print these off and take them around, fill them out, and take them down to the courthouse And get people registered. Well, because all you have to do is fill out this form. Uh, For the state of Kentucky, it tells uh, you have to have a full Social Security number, that's required, and you have to register with a party Mm -hmm. um, and be a citizen, of course, be a resident of Kentucky. and then, of course, uh, be a resident 28 days prior mm-hmm. to the election, mm-hmm. be 18, not a convicted felon, and not have been judgmentally incompetent, and not claim the right to vote anywhere else. So that, to me, yeah, sounds it's a, it's like a, a, a pretty, pretty simple... simple. It yeah. is,
1: and that's what the League of Women Voters and AUW mm-hmm. used to do, like, at Walmart and places. Yes, so uh,
5: but, we could uh, do that.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, we do. Okay, this fellow back here in the black shirt had a question.
4: This country and this country's government to really come to terms with the fact that a lot of the immigration issues that we have have been caused by this government in a lot of ways. Like ah, Syria, yeah. Cambodia, Latin America, <laughs> I'm
1: sorry, Iraq. I'm yeah. Yeah.
4: I mean, yes, that's just, if you go back 100 years or more, a lot of those immigration. Issues were pretty much caused by this country.
1: That's true. And I think that's, that- that's
4: also another really uncomfortable thing for people that are really patriotic and nationalistic to come to terms with. Yes. So that means that we are, as a country, responsible for taking care of these folks who have been outed from their homes. Based on things that we have directly caused.
1: That's, that is a very good point. And as a history teacher, and I would encourage all history teachers to point out that we have done terrible things. None of us, when they talk about take back America, I assume they're going to give it back to the Native Americans because every one of us came over here on a boat. Yeah, and
4: you mentioned the of people saying about the American boat. Yeah. That's such a vague Time someone yeah. says that, I always ask, what do you mean by American? Thank you. When someone Thank says our American culture, I'm like, what do you mean by that? Yeah. What exactly do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, that is such a good point to make.
4: Yeah. Because you know, that leads to so many other things that the person actually addresses, it, which they
1: usually don't. But what we're seeing is extreme nationalism or chauvinism, and when the guy goes into the bar and shoots the Indian guys because he says get out of my country, go back. People could say that to any of us.
4: Well, I mean, before the president that we have now was elected, any criticism that I gave about him, which had nothing to do with him personally or his race even, yeah. was usually met by his supporters telling me to take my illegal behind and my family's illegal behinds back to where we came. And I'm like, Really? So post racial that you have to bring up something like that. Yeah, that's Based interesting. on no knowledge of me except my surname and my appearance, that's rich. But yeah, that's
1: well, and what you're saying is, and this I find very uncomfortable, is that it's not just the right who are polarizing uh-huh. and prejudiced. We on the left, well, I speak for myself, those of you in the center or wherever you fall, we all too much our groups fall into that. Because it goes back, uh,
3: especially when it comes to other minorities, it's pitting them against each other for the scarce resources. Mm-hmm. So instead of looking at one another as brothers or sisters in the common cause, we're looking at one another as competition. Mm-hmm. Because I have heard some blacks you know, to say, well, if Trump did send them back, maybe my kids jobs because if you look at the unemployment rate for you know minorities it's it's really high so when you hear people say stuff like that it's like you're defeating you know the the purpose of why we should be united or how we can unite and fight against you know the wrong that is trying to be enforced, and the vision that's
4: trying to yeah. be I mean, implemented. Right, some people play right into it. Hispanics do the same thing, of yeah. vice versa. Yeah, they I think. play right into the, the, the racial aspects of it. Mm-hmm. And There's no need for that. I, mean, I wasn't brought up in a home like that. Yeah. But a lot of my extended family members, I was, unfortunately, I had to witness them making comments like that. Yeah. Like they were better than blacks because of this and that and I was like, "Hold up. You know, yeah.
1: yeah." Yeah. And I think that comes back to our faith, whatever it is, our morals. It's not a matter of a particular church or denomination, but if we really follow a moral code we, we yeah, I would not allow this.
3: We live in a very imperfect world, mm-hmm. and you know, I raise my children, you know, to love and to mm-hmm. appreciate other people and to respect other people, and um, and I think this the whole thing, left and right both. We have to learn to love each other, not to blame you and not to blame you. Yeah. And I think, and you know, just as simple as this is, love is the core. It is. And, you know. Uh, I don't think my little point of view and my little voice will ever do anything. That's just who I am. But, but I it know will. that if I demonstrate love and I teach my children and my grandchildren these things, that that's my hope and that's my gift to, you know, bring our
4: country together.
7: You know? That's
1: where change begins. So.
7: At the same time, you're going to call people up when
4: they do something or say something okay. are, which Bye. I clearly do. But it's done in so. Yeah, there's a there's a way to take
1: a way to deal with it I think.
6: And yeah. interestingly uh, Claudia Ramish, who had to leave
0: and I were talking there's a there's going to be an effort to get a training in this community for it's called bystander training so that we can all learn how not to let that go by.
1: And, and that event will be here at the library, possibly the 23rd of April. That hasn't been...
2: That's
1: interesting because the 24th of April is our next conversation. That's right. And our next conversation... Well, we'll just be busy, busy that weekend. Uh, the the, the, Monday, the, the next conversation will be a little lighter, but over underneath it's not. Because if you all remember the night that Angela was on the panel and she was talking about somebody touching her hair and how this was invading her space. And many of us hadn't really thought that through. And so the book is entitled Don't Touch My Hair and Other Things. Is that?
5: Yeah, and other things I shouldn't
1: have to Yeah. That, that we all have come from different cultures and different backgrounds and we need to respect each other's space. Did you have another comment back there?
8: Yeah, I was just going to say um, what you said about you know, the right being extreme in their views, and sometimes the left can be that way, too. I I tend to lean right, but I don't lean so much right that I close my mind off, you know. The the thing is, is scientifically, they're a bunch of buffoons. Um, and then in the left, I, I agree in some points there, and, you know, not every point. Um, And I've talked with my dad a lot about this. He's the genius in the family. And my dad, you know, he makes very solid points, which which is you can't have too much of one thing. And I mean, that's just true in nature. Mm -hmm. Anything you have too much of is bad.
1: It needs to be a balance.
8: Um, So the key is really finding a middle ground. Mm -hmm. And if you step back from the picture, and think, well, what is the middle ground? The middle ground is us. I mean, I'm, I'm mostly yeah. conservative, and I'm sitting here with a lot of people that would disagree with a lot of my points. And that's fine. We ought to be able to
1: discuss those things.
8: Um, but what I see is, you know, the people have to find the middle ground, mm-hmm. because until we do, the government has us exactly where we want us. We have the far right arguing with the far left, and nothing gets done.
1: And yes, and we're seeing that more and more. Well in political science the whole idea is moving toward the center and normally in history the pendulum will swing one way pretty far and then it'll swing back. The worst mistake I ever made as a teacher was in the 1990s when I thought we'd gone as far right as we could go and I said to my students the pendulum is going to begin to swing back. Well, believe me, I was very very wrong. It hadn't even begun to go right, but either direction to extremes has problems. We should always be reaching for that middle common ground where we can work together. It takes us, you know,
8: together about yes. And it's not gonna happen with the leaders. Because the no. leaders um they have their own agenda. And
1: that's called authoritarianism, which is another behavior that's well it's also called reactionism in that they do not start stuff we start it and pressure them into it. Which
8: basically what you start seeing in authoritarianism, which you know, a leader, a political leader has his agenda, for her agenda, um, and what that means is they're going to do exactly what they need to to push forward that agenda. Their program. And the people below them become unhappy. And it's extremely productive but you start seeing the problems we're seeing now, where yeah. everyone's divided. Yeah. So it's gonna take us coming together in mass and putting our foot down and saying, we're not gonna do that anymore. Yeah. So that's just how True. I look
1: at it. Well, <laughs> appreciate your input. Anybody else, anything that, uh... well then I think, what do we need? Yeah, April 24th. We have it down for 6 o'clock. Could we just have a kind of a sense of whether people prefer 6 or 6.30? This one
2: was 6.30. 6.30. 6.30. Me too, 6.30. 6.30. 6.30. Okay. Yeah, and it's, it's all. 6.30. Oh, and would
1: you all be thinking what you want to do after that? Do you want, you know, like a speaker? Do you want
2: another book? Do you a film? want another film?
1: Uh, I feel like that there is a drive to continue this conversation, and hopefully
4: broaden. And uh, we will be posting a podcast of this in, within probably the next week or so. Uh, may, maybe two weeks, because I am going to Washington, D.C. next week. Um, right now, you can listen to our other ones uh, on iTunes.